0: You're listening to the City Lights podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So um, I talk a lot about uh, my dad on Sunday mornings because uh, he's, he's quite a character and uh, he's easy to tell preacher stories about. Um, but I don't want you to miss out on the loveliness of my mom, Marsha. Um, me and my mom grew up uh, I grew up, obviously, my mom was grown. Um, <laughs> she was doing great on her own before I got here. Um, I grew up only child, single mom, Albany, New York. Um, basically, from the ages of three until I went off to college, it was just me and mom. So if you have any psychoanalysis of why I am the way that I am, it's because I'm an only child to a single mom. And so uh, I grew up in kind of like a, a different context and culture than maybe some in the room uh, we didn't grow up going to church. I definitely grew up at the track where my mom would do long-distance running, and that was kind of our church. And uh, my mom was, uh, was uh, healthy before it was hip. She was like serving hummus back when people were eating Doritos, and all my friends were like, we're not sleeping over there. They're just hummus and tofu over there or something. Um, but, um, you know, for all of the um, maybe lack of money as a grad student growing up in New York, going to SUNY Albany, you know, she wasn't missing in heart and grit when it came to being a single mom, you know, in Albany, New York, and uh, I always remembered uh, one of the activities, we were always looking for cheap activities that she would have me doing was, um, was gardening in the garden. We had this little apartment, but, you know, that didn't stop her from putting little railroad ties out and soil and, and mulch and stuff and growing up tomatoes. Uh, she'd call them fresh tomatoes, because in Indiana, where she grew up, they would always have frozen tomatoes or frozen vegetables and frozen peas and carrots and those types of things, uh, and, uh, they call them fresh frozen, she'd say, but they weren't fresh enough, so anyways, uh, she would plant those things, and jalapenos in the garden, and so forth, and, um, as a 10-year-old boy, that was about the most boring thing that you'd ever ask a 10-year-old kid to do, um, but certainly looking back on it, I can always appreciate mom, uh, more in hindsight as 38 years old than I was at eight years old, and, uh, if you look there on the board, she, uh, hasn't stopped gardening, that was my, uh, previous house at Four Gala Court, um, that we moved uh, last September just out of this house, and my mom was helping us plant just a couple of uh, plants there in, 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 the, uh, in the mulch. I think she planted a rose for Rose's birthday one year. And then uh, if you look at the um, final product of her most recent house that she lives in Simpsonville, uh, maybe if it's up there, maybe it was already up there before. She has a beautiful garden, has a wonderful kind of a green thumb, and always grateful for mom um, uh, in every season, I suppose. But, um, you know, uh, you don't have to be... Um, uh, a gardener necessarily to relate to the pictures that I've put up there, um, because ultimately, uh, gardening—if you're a gardener or have never been around a garden before—is um, a lot like being a parent. In fact, gardening is uh, like parenting in a lot of ways. You know, when you garden, um, you're you're never quite sure if what you did actually worked. You know, you're putting in seeds into this soil, and you don't really know necessarily the seeds that you're putting into that soil if they're going to be there. In six months or a year, and if they're going to be fruitful, and if what you did to the water and the soil and the sun, you're just learning. You're in an experimental phase, and a lot like that with parenting, you're trying to instill different axioms, different truths, and different um, consequences, and you don't really know what's going to come out of that soil in ten and twenty years. You're just sort of doing your best. Um, the thing about gardening that's like um, it's like children is it's never it's never really done. At a factory, you can kind of clock out, you know, but a parenting thing, you, you never really clock out because. You know, you could instill some of that truth in a kid for 10 and 20 years, and it would just take one teacher. It would just take one YouTube video. It would just take one bully at their school that could completely undo everything that you've been working on and doing for 10 and 20 years, but it's not like we have a choice in that. Like, that's what we signed up for as parents. You can know a lot about parenting from gardening uh, because, in a lot of ways, parenting is gardening. And even if you're not a parent and if you're not a gardener, uh, we can all relate to gardens and parents in the sense that... um, a lot of us in this room are disciples. And, um, and when we see uh, really throughout Scripture, not the least of these Scriptures is in, in the book of Acts, um, that gardening teaches us a lot about discipleship because the harvest that we're in is a field and not a factory. Like if you, if you, if you worked at BMW and, and you were in a plant, uh, there would be, you know, in a little assembly line. And uh, all the little widgets would come down the assembly line. And they all look the same and they all acted the same. And you could just do process A, B, and C and you'd get the end result and the product would pop out the other end. But that's not how discipleship works, right? The discipleship is a lot like uh, gardening and, and harvesting in the sense that every person that you've ever met that you are speaking to about Jesus is made completely different. Completely different as a snowflake, completely different as, as a fingerprint. And so you can't just say, well, first I'll teach you the Bible and then I'll teach you about the Holy Spirit. And then I'll teach you about children's ministry. And then I'll teach you about the Curriculum because there is no formula to discipleship because discipleship is a garden. It's like a harvest. And discipleship is like a garden in the sense that um, just because somebody is believing today does not necessarily mean they're going to be believing in six months or in 10 years. And there's people in this room that are here today and they're not going to be here in 10 years. And they're not going to, to believe. Just because somebody is believing today doesn't mean they're going to believe forever. And, and so this is, the, this is really the difference between a field and a factory. And the reason why we are called the fields and not factories is because ultimately speaking, discipleship and being a disciple, working in the fields, working in the harvest is about fruit, not success. That ultimately that the great commission of making disciples of everyone everywhere uh, points us towards fruit and not success. It points us to a story that wouldn't be possible without Jesus. It points us to a walk that if it weren't for Jesus, we would have quit. It points us to a ministry that if it was not for Jesus, it wouldn't have worked. It points us to a kind of a fruit that's not a success, that it wouldn't have been worth it if it wasn't for Jesus. And that's exactly why that the harvest is a field and not a factory. So if you're just joining us, we're actually on the third little segment of the entire 28 chapters book of Acts. The third segment takes up about half of the book of Acts, but it's still the last segment of a series of three. And the target on the board reminds us that the beginning of the journey of the book of Acts started in a place called Jerusalem, where everybody was 100% Jewish. And under deep persecution and the sovereignty of the Spirit, the gospel moved its way out to the neighboring countryside areas of Judea and Samaria, the place where there was about 50% Jewish. And finally, the gospel is going to make its way largely because of Saul, or Paul rather, the apostle is going to make its way out into the ends of the earth. And so whereas the first segment of the book of Acts teaches us that the gospel is mobile, it has feet and walks around, and has Pentecostal fire above each of the believers that makes its way out of Jerusalem, it's not only mobile, but it's global. In the second uh, period of of the segment of the book of Acts, there's all sorts of different cultures and different new um, backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses that begin to be invited into the gospel because of what Jesus does, that it's, it's the gospel plus nothing, is everything. And everyone, everywhere is invited to the gospel, not only those that are circumcised and abide by kosher, kosher laws. And it's in the last section right here where the gospel doesn't just become portable, not just global, but it becomes missional. It makes its way out to the ends of the earth through three missionary journeys of Paul. And so as we make our way from basically January, this will be the last message in the book of Acts, as we make our way from January to June, the next 14 chapters in the final part of this book of Acts, we're reflecting not just on Paul's missionary journeys, but ours as well. That Paul goes on a couple of short missionary journeys. Like that's pretty much all the rest of the book of Acts is. But then again, so is our life divided up in just a couple of short missionary journeys. You guys have, you and I have a couple of minutes that we're going to share, moments that we're going to share with a person at, you know, a, a counter, This week, we're going to speak to a waiter or waitress. We're going to speak to a stranger. We're going to say hey to a ref at one of our kids' games. Like we're going to engage in a short couple of moments of missionary journeys. But missionary journeys are not just moments. They're also a series of months that for a series of time, because you're raising kids together, you're going to be bumping shoulders and rubbing elbows and so forth with other moms and other dads, or you're going to be bumping shoulders and rubbing elbows with a couple of people that are going to be working with you for six months, but not for the next year. And so missionary journeys are not just moments, they're months. But then there's the Christmas time, right? And you're going to get around old Uncle Larry again. And that's a missionary journey unto itself. And it's not just been moments or months, but it's been years. And you're going to be walking years and years and years. And, and make no mistake, that's what I think what Acts is doing is it makes its way to the ends of the earth. It's not just going from there until, from here until there. It's going from then until now. The baton, the baton begins to lift us out to the uh, to perimeters of the circle, out of Paul's hands into our hands. Saying that I've started a missionary journey, but you're continuing this missionary journey right where you are. So I'll show you the map of really the chapter that we're looking at, chapter 14. And uh, if you look up here at the map, you'll see that um, that the gospel has made its way out of Antioch, which was the end of the uh, of chapter 8. John Childs preached right there. We were in Cyprus in that little island, and since then. Because it's not just portable, it's not just global, but it's missional, it's got feet, and it's making its way to the ends of the earth. It's going to go in this chapter from Perga to Antioch, from Antioch to Iconium, to Iconium to Lystra, and then Lystra to Derby. But that's not it. The itinerary doesn't just go from Perga to Antioch to Iconium, to Lystra to Derby, forwards, but you're going to see at the very end it also goes backwards. It goes from Derby to Lystra, Lystra to Iconium. Pisidian, Antioch, to Perga, and back again, that it goes forwards and backwards, that he retraces his steps from mission trip number one to mission trip number two to three, and then three back to two, back to one, because Paul doesn't work in a factory. He works in a field, and you can't just visit one place once and expect that the church is planted. You've got to go back, and you've got to, as the scripture says, encourage the brethren. You have to stir the soil. You have to lift up chins and encourage people that are down you have to go back and see the church planted because the church is not a factory the church is a field that needs to be planted and this is the sermon that he preaches as he goes all the way back to his his place of origin he preaches this one little verse this one little verse that i think gives us eyes to see the message in the middle of the mission trip and this is what he says in Acts chapter 14 verse 22 will be on the screen this is this this is his big big like viral video that he's going to preach on YouTube and get a bunch of people following him, right? This is going to be a really popular message that he's going to preach to the people then and the people now. We must go through, Acts 14, we must go through many hardships. This is Paul's message in the middle of this missionary trip. We got to go through a lot of hard stuff to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you've ever heard that message before. Usually I think I, I hear messages, and the message is more along the lines of, if you, if you find out the secret, it's through the secrets these secret mystical patterns and, and ways of thinking that you can kind of get to heaven because you're smart enough and because you've, you've figured out the secrets. He doesn't say it's through secrets. It's through hardships. Or maybe you've, you know, you've, you've heard messages and it's through this new strategy, this new way we're going to talk about things, this new, new way we're going to do things. This is not what Paul is preaching. Pre- he gets through this mission trip and he says, it's not through secret strategies, it's through hardships that we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven because the gospel is not complicated and easy. It's simple and very hard. This is what he preaches to encourage the saints as he goes on his little mission trip. So it's like having a baby, right? That the joy of having the baby is beautiful, but it doesn't eliminate the pain of delivering that baby. That heaven, heaven is coming to us through hardship is what Paul says. And so as we think about our missionary journeys, as we we're make our way through this chapter today, just chapter 14. This is the theme that I see in Chapter 14. That Paul wants us to know, that church and this church is that heaven is here. Heaven is coming, but it's coming through hardship. That out in front of us is this field. Jesus talks about it that way. He calls the mission that we have in front of us a field. And the field is a beautiful place that's white with harvests. There's so much fruit in the field. There's so many sons coming home. There's so many daughters getting set free. There's so many moms and dads that are being reunited. There's so much beauty and grace and wisdom that's coming up into the field, but that's not all that's in the field. In the field, there's also rocks. In the field, there's also thorns. In the field, there's also birds. In the field, there's also a beating hot sun that, that wastes away on people like the love of money and the worries of the world. And so heaven is coming through hardship is this, this message that's saying, out in the field is the harvest, but also out in the field is intimidation. I don't know if you guys have ever been a teacher before or stood up in front of people before. Uh, I I teach obviously here on Sundays at church, but I also used to teach U.S. history. And one of the most intimidating things you'll ever do is try and stand up in front of a 15-year-old and talk to them about U.S. history. You know how intimidating that is? They just look at you. They just could care less (laughs) about who you are and what you're doing. And you're going there as a teacher and you're thinking you're on mission, but they don't know that. They're the last person to know that. And it's super intimidating because they've been hurt by every adult, right, that they've ever come across. And they just think that you're out there just like every other adult, to get something out of them and not pour into them. And so the mission has fruit in it, it has harvest in it, but it also has intimidation. The mission ahead of you is white with harvest. Like the math problem is, there's more people ready to become Christians than there are Christians. There's a greater yield of harvest than there are workers, is what Jesus says. But the problem is that the the journey from the worker into the harvest is full of intimidation and is full of seduction. Like you're gonna get into, you're gonna get into that field, and and as the field is rockier and harder and thornier than you thought, alongside of that is gonna come this whisper of grass that's greener somewhere else. And instead of being heading into mission, we're gonna be tempted into the greener grass. We're gonna be tempted away from our mission, we're gonna be tempted to live on vacation rather than living on mission. And we're gonna spend most of our life going on mission trips, but living on vacation because of seduction. Because if he can't. Bully us, he'll bribe us. The enemy will. Or maybe it's just small things like in the field is righteousness, peace, and joy. In the field is heaven, but there's also distractions. There's also the washer that just broke and the dishwasher that never works and the, and the kid that just keeps, you know, failing his grades and whatever. There's these distractions that keep us away from what God has called us to because in the field is a mixed bundle of things. It's a mixed bundle of things. And so what Paul tells us about the hardship of heaven, but also the endurance that it takes to walk through it, is it all has to do with the eyes. Go figure. This is what Acts is always about, right? Witnesses and eyes. And he's actually practicing what Jesus is preaching as he's preaching this message, and it'll be on the screen. This, I think, is what Paul's life models to us more than anything, and over the next three mission trips that we'll read about in John 4. Jesus says it matters where you look. Look, he says, I tell you, when you look at the field, all you're gonna see is fear, you're going to come to me and you're going to say, this mission is impossible. This mission is not possible. People are too bitter. People are too stubborn. People are too over Jesus. People are too deconstructed. People are too distracted. People are too materialistic. And the mission's impossible. And he's saying, you're looking in the wrong place. John 4, Jesus says, if you will look to me, if you will lift up your eyes, you will see that the fields are ripe for the harvest. And so I think as we make our way through, we'll see that that Paul is preaching this message that hardships, that heaven comes through hardship, but the way that he's making his way through is all about where his eyes are focused. So this is back to where Zach uh, opened up this morning, uh, earlier during the reading. I'll read it once more. So this is the first stop, the first mission trip at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas. They go to this usual suspects. They go to the Jew first. They go to the synagogue and they start preaching there. And it says two things happen. Number one, they spoke so effectively that a lot of people believed, that Jew and Gentiles believed. But then verse two says, as they were spending time winning people to follow them and, w- and winning fans, they also earned themselves from enemies. So in verse two, it says, the Jews refused and believed refused to believe and stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So really in the first two verses, there's not really neutral. There's people that are for, there's people that are against, but there's not really anybody in the middle. I mean, Jesus is like that. Like people say, well, Jesus is a peacemaker and he brings everybody together. No, it says that Jesus comes to bring the sword and he'll divide a room just as quick as he'll unite it. Over the gospel. So then, verse three says, "So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message by His grace, by enabling them to perform signs and wonders." The people of the city were divided; some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe, to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. So their first stop, they stop at this place to preach the gospel. Some accept and some reject. And in the meantime, they go through pretty much excruciating pain. So here's a little straw poll that you've picked up on Instagram and you can kind of vote when you want. Would you rather? Would you rather tomorrow know that you are going to be taken outside to, uh, you know, some street outside in Greenville publicly? And would you rather have rocks thrown at you? Would you rather be stoned? Remember the saying, sticks and stones would break my bones, words would never hurt me. Would you rather be in the situation that tomorrow, I say, you can choose your path. Tomorrow, you're going out to a public spot, you're getting rocks thrown at your head, okay, physically hurt. Would you rather be slandered? Would you rather be stoned or would you rather be slandered? Would you rather have, emotionally, people going behind you, spinning a narrative about you behind your back, so that people believed what the people were saying about you rather than what was coming out of your mouth, that other people were believing? Would you rather be stoned or slandered? Would you rather be physically hurt or insulted? or emotionally? Or last but not least, would you rather be backstabbed? Would you rather have somebody that you trusted that was in your inner circle turn on you and stab you in the back when you're not looking? Would you rather be stoned, would you rather be slandered, or would you rather be backstabbed? Which one would you rather be? Well, the human condition, right, of all these different types of pain, of being stoned, slandered, or backstabbed, is, is to fight, flee, or freeze, right? That's, that's, that's the idea here, is that if it's just man, that Freud or whoever it is in psychology class that taught us, that when somebody gets stoned, backstabbed, or slandered, they're gonna fight, flee, or freeze. That's just our knee-jerk reaction. But instead, what is verse three says that in the place of resistance, Paul is raised up in resilience and continues to speak boldly for the Lord as he's experiencing all this pain. All that to say that we're reminded this verse that the acts of the apostles is really not the acts of the apostles, right? It's the acts of the spirit. That minus the spirit, these people are not standing firm, they're fighting or they're fleeing, they're freezing. And all that to say also that beyond that, what it's reminding us in our theme today is that the harvest in this verse is depicted as being right in the middle of a lot of pain. That the harvest is never separate. Like we wish that the harvest was somewhere else where there's this perfect you know, cascade of flowers that I took Cairo to at Jeter Farms the other day, right? With all these flowers where everything's beautiful. And there's this harvest, we just go out and pick all the, all the, all the flowers, all the fruit. But that's not what the, what the field is described as here, is it? It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag of fruit and stones and thorns and birds and thistles and all these types of things. So I love, John Childs uh, did a fantastic job uh, preaching on Acts 13 last week. And one of the illustrations he left out was this illustration of a traffic light. And, uh, and I think it's, um, I can't remember the organization that came up with it first. It deserves credit somewhere else other than myself. But um, it's talking about the harvest, to go into the harvest field to see disciples of everyone everywhere is like a traffic light in the sense that you're gonna run into people that are red lights, yellow lights, and green lights. There are people that are just absolutely obstinately resistant to you. There's people that are pretty much ambivalent and neutral to you. And then there's people that are ready to listen to you that either like you or like Jesus or like both, and are interested in hearing more about the gospel. So I remember I I taught at Southside High School in the public school for about six years. And I definitely ran into this, a lot more red lights than green lights, I'll tell you that much. And so I remember going in there and uh, I was walking down the hall one time and I shared this story. Uh, it was like one of the hardest moments. I like, went to school. I'm going to go change the world. And I'm doing great on my first year. And I go down there. And over here, it's this classroom. And, uh, it, it, and they're, they're basically a mob against me talking to this other psychology teacher about how awful Wong is. Wong is the worst. He is so disorganized. He doesn't know what he's doing. I just wanted to crawl in the hole. I literally called my dad. and was like ready to quit. And then he gave me the speech. Wongs don't quit. You guys know that speech. But anyways, he wouldn't let me quit, right? right? So there's tons of red lights. And especially the second time I went around into, um, into Southside between ministry, I went back there one time in 2015. There's a difference between being 23 years old and there's a difference between being 30 years old. They do not listen to 30 years old nearly as much as they used to listen to uh, 23 years old. When I was 23, they dressed me up like Soldier Boy, believe it or not. And I did this entire dance in front of the, uh, uh, in front of the little pep rally at the football game, and it went great. Uh, that did not happen when I was 30. I um, had a little bit more arthritis those days. Anyways, so Anyways, um, I had a good number of people that didn't know my name, didn't care about me, weren't here or there. But then there was a few people there. There were a few people there that I believe God sent me there for. There's a few people there in the middle of all the reds and all the yellows and all the greens. There's a few people there that would stay after for trash cabal. Well, I'll tell you what. There's about three things that I could tell you as a teacher. And I went to school and taught for seven years. About three things. And one of those things is trash football. You get a little duct tape thing and you have people throwing basketballs in the thing and they answer trivia questions. It's amazing. You just go from you know, uh, people that are not paying attention all the way to Harvard, just based on that little, um, just based on that little game, you know. But all I would say, as you look off in the rearview mirror, like, you know, you're going to engage in this next year, 2023, with hundreds and hundreds of people, but you're really going to affect and change, you know, a half dozen. That ultimately, when I look back into 2007, all the way to 2011, when I served there as a teacher, I come to realize, like, me being in that school was not really for the red lights, it was for the green lights. The purpose of me being there was not for the critics or the people that were against me or the people that were ambivalent towards me, that ultimately I was there to endure all that so that I could talk to the people after trash cabal, that I was there to talk to people um, that God had prepared the soil for. And so this is why I think it's so important today in today's day and age and today for you and for me that our eyes are on Jesus in the middle of the field, not the field, that our eyes are on Jesus Because right now you have a bunch of critics in your life, and all you want to do is to act in a way to get them to stop criticizing you. But none of that's going to cause them to stop criticizing you. And ultimately speaking, you're not really there to prove those critics wrong. You're there for the people that you're called to. And if you're paying attention to who the critics are and what the critics are telling you to do, you're going to completely not pay attention to the people that are open to you and the people that you're actually called to be there for. That in the middle of the harvest, there is, or in the middle of the field, there is a harvest. There are people that are green light that are ready to hear the gospel, but it's on the other side of pain. It's on the other side of the hurting that it takes to fall down and rise up again. And and I can tell you, you know, preaching for X amount of years, your story, for sure, I can absolutely tell you this, that your story more than any other sermon is going to impact people way more than any other sermon can if you're able to see the harvest looking at Jesus in the middle of your pain, that people need to hear the story that you're in, not even just the one that that you've got through, but the one that you're in the middle of, because stories oftentimes preach better than sermons. Lastly, that between us and the harvest is a ton of fear, because the thing that happened before could happen again. And according to this passage in Acts, there isn't a promise that what happened before isn't going to happen again. But here's what the promise is saying, that what God did to you in the pain of the last season, God's going to show out of you in this season, and you won't know until you engage the harvest looking at Jesus because it's in that place that God's going to show you what he's done in you through the, through the pain that you've just walked through. And so this is, this, is the, this is the dilemma, is that the harvest is right in the middle of all the hurting. It's right in the middle of the backstabbing. It's right in the middle of the rejection. It's right in the middle of the slander. So Acts 14, it continues on. If you can't beat them, you join them. So the harvest is in the middle of hurt, but it's also in the middle of idolatry. Verse 8, it says this, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and he had never walked. Some of you guys that read Acts chapter 3 are getting a little bit of a remix, uh, rerun here on this episode. For verse 9, it says, he listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him. He saw the man had faith to be healed and he called out, stand up to your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Do you see the commonalities? At the gate beautiful in Acts chapter three, Peter goes up to a guy who's been lame from birth, talks to the guy. He gives them the same sermon. I don't want you to look at my money. I want you to look at me because I don't have anything that God doesn't have to give you. And so all that I have to offer you is what God has to. So look at me because I need you to look at Jesus. So there's a lame man that in this sense, Paul tells the guy to look at. And then the same exact healing happens that he says, stand up to your feet. And now the lame man looks at Paul and is now healed and ready to walk. Whereas the lame man looked at Peter is now ready to walk. The lame now, man now looks at Paul and is now ready to walk. And then there's a clue. And then there's a clue. Here's the clue. Here's why people in Gentile world and in Jewish world are lame and blind. Here's the answer. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their Lyconian language that gods have come down from human form. There's a little myth back then that um, basically the Greek gods, you know, they all lift up in, in heaven eating grapes and being half naked or whatever, right? And, uh, and they would send down these little messengers. Zeus and Hermes are gonna be their names. And uh, basically, if you were on your good side and rolled out of the bed the right way, if you invited Zeus and Hermes in and showed hospitality, then you'd be saved. Uh, you would not get destroyed by all the other Greek gods and goddesses that were up there, you know, ready to smite you, okay? And so this was the gospel of the Romans uh, in this Greek town in, in, in Lyconia. And so here's, so what's the symptom? Here's, here's the issue. Barnabas, uh, they called Zeus, Right? Okay, so Barnabas, you're Zeus. And then Paul, they called Hermes because uh, he was the guy who was the chief speaker and that reminded me of Hermes. And the priest of Zeus comes down whose temple was just outside the city and interesting, brought bulls or in other parts of the scripture, calves and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. What is the great Luke, the physician, you know, trying to tell us about the blindness of humans, not just Jewish, but also Gentile. Why is the guy standing outside the gate beautiful? out here in front of the Jewish temple, and now in Iconia, in, in a Roman capital, doing the same exact thing. Well, the, this is two different symptoms for the same source. You know what the source is? Idolatry. But the opposite of the gospel is not sin, it's idolatry. The opposite of the gospel is not just doing bad things, it's making good things God. And therefore, the healing is not just to get bad people to do good things, the healing is for broken people to see that creation isn't to be worshiped and that the healing of the heart is from from idols. This gives us a lot of vision and understanding about the way the world works, because when you look at the world and you talk to normal people on the street, are you a pretty good person? Yeah, I pay my taxes, and I love my dad, and I send, you don't have to be a Christian to send your mom Mother's Day cards, right? That's not what makes the gospel the gospel. What makes the gospel the gospel is not what you do, but who do you worship? Idolatry is the issue. Talk to somebody about their idols. Talk to somebody about the way that they put hope in their political party or the way they put hope in their education system or the way that they put hope in social justice or the way they put hope in the things that they do right and their neighbor doesn't do right. And then you'll find out what the gospel came to save us of. The reason why people are blind and lame is not because of cataracts or bunions. It's because of idols, Jewish or Gentile alike. It's because the heart is broken and crippled and you can fix all the sin in the world and not fix the idol and you won't have the gospel. So Paul comes in and preaches the gospel to him. And this is what the gospel sounds like. Notice it doesn't say it doesn't start off with your depravity, and it starts off with blessing. The gospel starts with blessing. Beginning in the beginning is Genesis one, which is blessing. That's exactly what John talked about last week in the uh, three circles chart. But verse fourteen says this. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out of the crowd, shouting, "Friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from worthless idols to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them." In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left you without a testimony. Not every time you sit down and share the gospel with somebody, you have to go through all the different steps. Sometimes, for, especially for talking to Uncle Pete or whatever, you know, for Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving, you might just start with, you know, you're not God. That's a great way to start sharing the gospel. You're a dirty sinner and all this. I mean, you're not God. How about that? Just start off with that. That's a great way to start the gospel, okay? He has shown kindness by living, giving you rain from heaven and crops in this season. How, how much is gratitude attracted to grace? right? Entitlement is attracted to legalism. Grace is attracted to gratitude. It puts you in this place where God is big, and he's better, and my idols can't stand a chance against that. So preaching, right, about the goodness and the blessing of God is a great way to start the gospel. It's not the complete one, but it's a good way to start. He has shown kindness to you by giving rain from heaven and crops in every season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crop from sacrificing them. So, right, if they can't, can't beat you, they, they join you. I remember um, when, I, when I first became a believer, uh, I had a bunch of people that thought it was so weird and they were like, man, you're just like not fun anymore and you, know, you don't watch the movies we watch and drink the things we drink and so forth. But then I also realized that in becoming a Christian, like, there was a whole bunch of people that just started to like me. I don't know if this is you and you know, I'm coming from a place where there wasn't a ton of Christians, but like, you know, they'd be like, oh, Oliver, in like, my family would be like, you're just the good one. You know? You're such a good guy. and You, know, you, just, you were faithful to Kyra and you don't know, do it old. Jack and this and that and that, dude. You know, you're just a good guy, and I'm just so thankful for you. And I hope that my daughter marries somebody like you. And man, like, man, that makes you feel great. This Jesus thing is going awesome. You know? And, uh, and then, you know, then you grow up and you have a family like, oh, you're the family man, Oliver. Like, man, you got the four kids, and man, I just, that's what the world needs is just guys like you. Keep that up, man. Be a really good family man and be a really good dad, because that's what it's really about. You know? Or, you know, as a preacher, they'll be like, man, you're just like, you're a good preacher. You're not like one of those other preachers down the street that does X, Y, and Z. You're a good preacher. So like, I'm really going to follow you. I wouldn't do any of those other things that those other preachers do. And I really, I really like you, you know? And, uh, and, and, and I think early in my naivety of, of being a believer, I used to think that those types of compliments and accolades were a sign of God using me. But as I grow older and think about it a little bit more shrewdly, I'm not so sure that those aren't signs of people using me. That implicit in some of those compliments, in some of those, remember the rich young ruler says to Jesus, hey, I can tell that you're a good teacher. Remember what he says? And he says, who who among us is good? Is this conspiracy really of trying to find some type of a Zeus, a hero, an idol that precludes our need for Jesus. That it's you and me, you know, Pastor Oliver, other than all those other stupid people down the street, you and me agreeing on A, B, and C, which not necessarily have to do with the gospel, against those people, that's what's going to save us. That ultimately, that it's uh, that it's you and me minus the death burial and resurrection of Jesus and the atoning covering of sin over uh, over over the need of, of all broken humanity. That's going to be the gospel. And if you and me stick together and just be the nice guys, be the humble guys. If you and me stick together to be the organized and intelligent Christians. If you and me stick together to be these types of people, then we'll see the power of God change the world. And. And I'm not so sure that this isn't just as much the enemy in the first section of the scripture as the second section of the scripture. If he doesn't beat you with intimidation, he'll beat you with seduction. He'll beat you with a life of self preservation, right? And self reliance and self dependence, a calcification over the years of the heart based on idols. And so here's why we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, not just in intimidation, but also in seduction, because there's a lot of Jesus out there. You know, there's like environmentalist Jesus. And there's left-wing Jesus and there's right-wing Jesus, and there's nice Jesus and there's masculine Jesus. The two big ones that I can think of is security Jesus and significance Jesus. Jesus came to make everything safe, clean, and cozy. Cozy life and a cozy house and a cozy yard and the cozy thing. There's another Jesus, right? There's a significance Jesus that's saying bigger, better, faster, stronger. There's a significant Jesus, but ultimately there's only one Jesus, and that's exactly what it seems like Paul is trying to pair his clothes about that they're not. Labeling something Jesus that's not really Jesus, just reorganizing, capitulating their idols to make them more palatable to them, but insist that they are humans just like them and insist there's only one Jesus. There's the Jesus that saves, heals, delivers, and no one else. And so I think this is why it would be important that our eyes would be on Jesus in a time like this because, because in order to tell the counterfeit, we'd have to have our eyes fixed on legitimate, on the real thing. On the one and only Jesus. So it all comes down to this final message in Acts chapter 14 that he preaches to them, but really he kind of preaches to us too. Uh, Luke zooms back out um, to the original kind of setting of the dynamic of what's going on in all these missionary journeys, is that there's intimidation, there's seduction, and then there's distraction, but they continue to stand firm as they're being stoned and being persecuted. It says in verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. There's a little sandwich, right? The, the summary sandwich. The event that happened in Lystra and then these two things at the very bottom. And they stoned Paul and they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. They stoned him so bad they thought he was dead. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Verse 21, it says that they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So they went one, two, and three. And then they went three, two, and one backwards. Backwards. And they strengthened the disciples because it's a field and not a factory. And they tended to the soil. And they watered. And they sowed. And they harvested. And they worked and they labored because heaven comes through hardship to deliver the baby. So he must go through many hardships. This is what Paul says. You must go through, you and I are not, we are not entering heaven through chilling. We're going through hardship. It's not through pampering, it's through perseverance. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. And Paul, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of them in the church in prayer and fasting, and they committed because what do you need a commitment for if you don't know there's resistance? There better be a commitment at the front door once you go into the field because you're going to want to quit once you get into it because there's hardship out there. It doesn't just come popping off the vine. So there's a commitment, just like raising a garden, just like raising a kid, just like raising a disciple. There's a commitment to the Lord in the field. Because to see the field is fear, but to see Jesus is to see the whiteness of the field, the readiness of the field, in whom they have put their trust. And so um, I'll close with this, with this story. Um, when me and Kyra you know, first got married in 2005, we were, we were 21. And we had little Rose by the time we were 22, so that's quick math, y'all. Okay, it wasn't a shotgun wedding, but certainly just short of that, I suppose. And so um, I remember uh, me and Kyra have really generous um, uh, parents and really generous relatives. And uh, they let us go down to Marco Island, Florida, just for free on this honeymoon. And it was so great. Man, there was nobody down there. And, um, and I just always say about Marco Island, like there's people that vacation just like normal. And then there's people that like are intense about their vacation. Like it was intensely vacationing down there. It was quiet. And there was just calmness. And the, and the beach was white. And you could see all the way out to 10 feet. And it was just intensely. It was like people focused on vacationing. And I respected that a lot. And so we went on this little vacation, and we bought the little uh, sunglasses, and I listened to Damien Rice the whole way, and we listened to our iPod minis just for a little bit of a um, chronological uh, context there. And so um, we were there to be there for seven days, and probably somewhat because I don't know if we knew how to cook yet, and so I was just like cooking potatoes in the microwave and just trying to figure out my life because I was 21 and just eating ramen noodles, you know, but also just because we were bored. Like, we cut our honeymoon short by three days because we were bored. I don't even know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, just wish, I think about those days all the time. I wish I could get them back. But there's something about, there's something about vacation that you know you're supposed to visit, but not live there. You know you're supposed to be there for a second, but that's not what you're made for. You're not made for vacation. Any of you guys brave enough to admit that it's easier to get in a fight with your spouse on vacation than it is to get in a fight when you're doing normal life? Why is it easier? that you woke me up at 6.30 and I was supposed to sleep till 6.45. Like, why is it easier to get on a fight on vacation, the happiest day of the year. There's nothing but blue skies and beaches, and we're in a fight in the minivan. Why is that? I read a New York Times article. I'll tell you why. Because of expectations. That's the whole problem with marriage, right? That's the whole problem. Because you have this expectation that this is where my dreams come true, but they don't come true on vacation. And it's easier to get on, on a fight on vacation than when you're on mission. Because when you're on mission, when I'm on vacation, you're in my way. When we're on mission, I need you. When we're on vacation, what you want and the way that you're wired and what you're doing is in conflict with my dream because it all revolves around me. But when we go out on a mission, the vision gets bigger, and now the thing that was in my way, I need. I need Kyra the way that she, she the way that she gets up and the way she goes to sleep and the way that she leads in this way. I need. She's not just in my way. She's a necessity because she's my partner in this mission, and the field is too big for me. And heaven comes with hardship, so I need her. And so this, I think, is what Acts is continually doing to us. Like, this is a, you know, that it's a slippery slope because you start off and say, well, I don't have to go to Africa on a mission. I can just live in Greenville. But the problem with that is, is that when you live in Greenville and you don't go to Africa, you know as well as I, it's just a lot easier to slip into vacation and not be on mission. And all of a sudden, you wake up from the mission trip and you're realizing, like, I spend, I go on mission trips, but I live on a vacation, and, and, and I think what Paul is calling us to in this whole hardship thing is like, if we don't have sort of our eyes, this is, this is what makes a missionary a missionary is not going to Africa. It's where the eyes are locked in. And if the eyes are locked in on the field, it will just be too hard and it will just hurt too much. No one accidentally goes on mission. No one accidentally without, commi- without commitment and commission goes on mission. It takes, it takes a decision up front, a devotion up front to say, I'm going on mission. I'm not made for vacation. I'm made for mission. And so I think that's as simple as it is. It's not a passport, it's not a ticket. That's true, it's not a t- It's just crossing the, it's crossing the street. That's all that it is. But it's crossing the street with your eyes in a certain place, with your eyes on the harvest. This is what Jesus says, that the harvest is plentiful, that the workers are few. It's supposed to look impossible. It hurts too much and it's too hard for you to do it unless your eyes are locked in on him. Unless you know that there's disciples in the field, moms and dads and brothers and sisters that have, unless you have a vision for that, to lift your eyes to the heavens, the mission is too hard. So my intentional question as the band comes forward as Ashley moves up here to lead us in prayer is, um, is basically the one question is just, um, in the field, what do you see? Like, here's the other side of the coin, um, and I know it kind of goes against my primary theme for the morning, you know, to look at Jesus and not at the field, but oftentimes I've found the thing that I'm most intimidated about is probably telling me about where the devil's overplayed his hand, and oftentimes the mission is oftentimes beyond the thing that I'm most intimidated about. The person or word or conversation or question that I'm most intimidated about is the distance between my vacation and my mission, but I don't get to pick pick the field. Jesus picks the field. What are you intimidated about? What is... What is the mountain that's always never moved for you before? What is the wave that continues to hit you over and over and over again? What is the giant that continues to taunt you over and over again? Like you wouldn't have thought about it and given the giant opportunity to taunt you if maybe Jesus wasn't calling you beyond it. So what is the thing you're intimidated about? What would, what would you, what are you not doing because you're not sure that Jesus has called you? Number two, just as much as we've been concerned with intimidation, where are you being seduced? It's a slow drift when you get onto the ocean and you set your towel up and you look up and you're 30 feet down the beach from where your towel is. Because it's a slow seduction from the kingdom dream to the American dream. And there's an easy conflation that you're just good people doing good things. And we don't need Jesus to do good people and do good things. We just do good. And we drifted, drifted from the original thing. And so where has there been a seduction potentially in our midst? Like if it's not Potiphar, it's Potiphar's wife. Number three, where is there just distraction, just the busyness of the mundane Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday that wears away from our clarity for the harvest? And finally, where's the green light? Ultimately, when we ride off you know, and complete the mission that Jesus has given us and handed us over, that he started and we're continuing, ultimately speaking, it is, it is given us here for the harvest and not necessarily um, for the critics, for the green lights and not the red lights. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.